In part 5 of the Dawson series, we started to see mass immigration of French Canadians into New England mill cities. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Patrick Lacroix, where we'll be discussing the transition from farm to life for these Quebecois immigrants. This is Dawson Revisited. Today, we're speaking about the transition from Quebec farmland to the tenement life. Patrick, before we begin, could you tell me a little bit about your background? Bonjour, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be joining you. Um, I'm happy to say a few words. Uh, I'm originally from Cowansville in La Belle Province in Quebec, uh, the Eastern Townships region. And um, I've been all over the place in the last decade or so. Um, from St. Catharines in Ontario to New Hampshire, Nova Scotia, and now Fort Kent. I picked up uh, a few degrees along the way. Um, I was recently a manager for Pearson Tessiners in Nova Scotia. And as you mentioned, I'm now the director of Acadian Archives in Fort Kent, uh, almost at the northern tip of Maine. And it's really a pleasure to be able to do my part to help preserve the rich heritage of this region and to help elevate local voices so that their story is heard as well. So thank you again for having me today. Thank you, that was beautiful. On the topic of French Canadian farmers immigrating to mill cities in New England, how many arrived in these mill cities and through what years was it? That's a great question. And innocuously, it's a very complicated one as well uh, because we could arguably start the story of Franco-America at the um, in the mid 1770s with the American Revolution, when during the retreat from the province of Quebec, the Continental Army dragged back with it uh, French Canadian men, women, and children who were no longer welcome and no longer felt safe in the old province of Quebec, and these were arguably arguably the first Franco-Americans. Uh, but in terms of a mass movement predominantly produced by economic causes, uh, including um, overpopulation, limited resources, uh, depleted soils, for instance, in the province of Quebec. We could start that story um, around the 1820s and 1830s, when a trickle begins, um, first into Vermont and upstate New York and central Maine. Um, and eventually, as you say, and as you explained really well in the Dawson series, in some of these larger industrial cities across New England. Over the course of a century, it's evaluated, and this figure has kind of become canonical among historians, roughly 900,000 to a million Franco-Americans, or I should say French Canadians, um, before they were even Franco-Americans. Uh, as for the mill cities, they attracted, we know, at least half of this large contingent of people, but um, in the early days of the diaspora, many French Canadian families headed to Michigan, 
uh, to Illinois, especially Northeastern Illinois, uh, the Midwest at large, many of them did acquire farmland in the Midwest. Um, and a lot of small regional centers like Plattsburgh, which had a diverse economy and was not a major industrial powerhouse. Uh, places like Northern Vermont as well, where many people become became skilled craftsmen or simply unskilled laborers. And uh, the same applies to the Upper St. John Valley, which is where I'm reaching you from today. Um, not a whole lot of large industry until the end of the 19th century. But increasingly, the field of immigration was diverted uh, to the larger cities, um, some of what we call the uh, the crown jewels of Franco-America, uh, some, of, some of which inspired Dawson, of course, so Lewiston, Manchester, Lowell, Fall River, Woonsocket, um, and it just had a snowball effect. Increasingly, railways were diverting people to those large industrial centers, and people um, saw these as large reservoirs of potential opportunities. So how did this change over time? Because you mentioned that they all very went into these different places, and they all came at different times. Yeah, that's right. So in the early years of the diaspora, um, and I use this term, we could say, you know, the great hemorrhage, as it's often called in Quebec, la grande saignée, or this immigration movement. Um, again, in the early days, it's predominantly from one rural region in Quebec to another uh, rural region in the States, uh, again, Northern Vermont, and New York, Central Maine, the St. John Valley. Um, but over time, thanks to the railway, especially from the 1850s, um, that field of immigration is diverted. Um, and the Quebec colonization movement will eventually try to lure people back home or keep them on the farmland. But there's really no substitute for hard cash, which is what people are looking for in this period. Uh, so the economy, even in the countryside of Quebec, is becoming increasingly monetized, increasingly tied up in commercial networks that are international. Um, and people need liquidity to pay off debts, to pay off a mortgage, um, and to supply their own needs. And sometimes what they're producing on the farm isn't enough to earn that, uh, that necessary income. So they'll seek that income, again, in all sorts of places across the states, across the great republic. Um, but the easiest way of earning money will oftentimes be to uh, move to an industrial city where they know that the entire family can be employed, earn hard cash in the short term, and then move back. But of course, you know that over the course of that period, people become increasingly rooted to American soil, partly because they notice that uh, there's really not much more opportunity uh, being developed north of the border. So why did it begin at that specific time? Why did they start going then? And why did they not go like before or after that? Yeah, great question. We can say that French heritage people in North America have been on the move since colonial times. Um, even in the late 18th century, early 19th century, you still have trappers and voyageurs and people involved in the fur trade. But there is a fairly small group at that point in time. The fur trade is pretty much dying out. But there's a new um, economic situation that arises in Quebec. And it's partly the decline of the wheat economy 
people are diversifying and um, increasingly they have to turn to supply to their or uh, support their own needs. They have to turn to non-commercial products and that happens mostly in the 1820s, 1830s when people are again turning away from wheat and turning to in some places buckwheat, barley, peas, potatoes, uh, which have some cash value but not to the same extent and increasingly there's competition coming in from the midwest and that happens not quite as of the creation of the erie canal but soon after so increasing competition and they'll be pushed out of the marketplace by um, the rich farmland and its products um, in the midwest so that's part of the equation we do know that there's also um, a demographic boom and the population of what is then Lower Canada doubles in the space of a generation. So from 1815 to 1840, the population doubles. Um, and needless to say, the square acreage in Quebec that's under growth, uh, under cultivation, does not double. Uh, so there are limited resources, the soil is being depleted, and farms are increasingly cut up until it's only as big of a plot that can support a family. Um, so that younger sons, younger daughters have to look away to other opportunities. Um, and for those who might not be interested in going out into the wilderness of Quebec and compete with bears and moose and you know raise mosquitoes practically for a living just by virtue of being there, they need to move south. They need some sort of cash, they need to support themselves and where else but in the States. And increasingly, we might discuss this a little bit further on in this interview, but specific regions of Quebec will become increasingly tied to specific regions of the Northeast. Well, you guessed that right. That actually was uh, what I was wondering. So where where did they come from in Quebec? A very large proportion of the immigration movement will come from the what we call the Champlain-Richelieu system, that is east and southeast of Montreal. Um, so from New York City, to Sorel, you practically have a straight hydrographic highway, which is the Hudson River. And then there's a short portage, Champlain, uh, Lake Champlain, and then the Richelieu River. And from the 1790s onward, that is a very rich commercial artery. Uh, a lot of the wood that's being cut along the shores of Lake Champlain to make room for Yankee settlers is floated down the river and sold at market in Montreal. And so people are very much aware that this is a potentially profitable commercial artery and increasingly people move up from the lower Richelieu basin upstream along Lake Champlain because they know that there's a lot of economic activity there. So uh, just for us non-smart people, where, where exactly is this in terms of what we know? Like Northern Vermont? Uh, yeah, so um, <clears throat> the uh, Lake Champlain separates New York State from Vermont. So it's right between the two, it's sandwiched between the two. And uh, uh, the Richelieu River flows out of that lake almost in a direct south to north axis. Uh, and it empties into the St. Lawrence River, not too far downstream from Montreal. And there are other regions as well that become increasingly connected to um, new homes, new areas in New England. So the region around St. Ours and the lower Richelieu River, again, close to the St. Lawrence River, is tied 
through transportation networks and kinship networks really early on, perhaps as early as the 1810s and 1820s to Rhode Island of all places um, in the lower St. Lawrence River. So downstream from Quebec City, uh, the regions we call Kamouraska, Timiskwata, uh, the region around Rimouski, all those families are quickly diverted towards uh, the upper St. John Valley. And that's partly because they're so close by and already that is becoming a major commercial theater as well due to lumbering. Uh, so they join a lot of the old Acadian families that had settled up in that region. We have people from the Bows doing the overland portage uh, or what had once been the overland portage to central Maine. And there are a few other regions like that. We could go on and on about these, um, how could we call them? Um, maybe these twin regions that are connected through ties of culture and family lineage, uh, including the Eastern town Township. So Sherbrooke has really close ties to both uh, Lewiston actually, because they're on the same railway line and Berlin in upstate New Hampshire. So the people that are coming on this train line, uh, are they families? Are they young men? Who, who's coming down? In the early days of the diaspora, uh, in the 1820s, 30s, 40s, into the 1850s, so all through the first half of the 19th century up to the American Civil War, we do find that it's predominantly young men who are hoping to earn cash on the quick, who are no longer needed on the family farm, and who are hoping themselves to found a household. And before they can contract a marriage to anyone, um, so that they can be an alluring partner, if you will, they need to have some sort of income. They need to have savings. They need to be able to put money on a plot of land or have earnings of some kind. So that's predominantly what we see in the first phase of the uh, diaspora. And we do see a lot of young couples as well. So we suspect that a lot of these young men are coming back to lower Canada or to Quebec to marry and perhaps facing few other opportunities and now being well acquainted with the states, they come back down and found a household on American soil. Um, I've noticed in my research on upstate New York that so many of the couples that we find in the, the censuses of 1860 and 1870, we have both parents born in Canada or lower Canada and all the children, including the eldest, they're born on American soil, which suggests that upon marrying, they moved really quickly, or sometimes only the eldest child or daughter um, was born in Canada. So we have young couples, and soon thereafter, increasingly, we'll have whole families where, again, they realize that there are industrial opportunities and the income of a full household is needed. So you're saying that these elderly people like the Meme and the Pepe, are they staying in Quebec or are they coming to the United States? My sense is that that's one area where further research is needed. Um, so that could be a, for all those who are listening, that could be a fun um, dissertation project, research project, podcast project, you name it. Uh, here's what we do know, or at least that I know. Um, many of these people who are older have already had you know, a full lifetime's worth of work. Oftentimes they have owned 
a piece of property. Many of them are quote unquote renters or rentiers, which means to say that they've passed the plot of land or their property onto the next generation um, in exchange for uh, what we call a rent. So basically kind of a pension, uh, you know, retirement income that is provided by the next generation, by their sons or daughters who've taken over the plot of land. So oftentimes people who are older um, don't have the means to pass on necessarily outside of a plot of land, which might be heavily indebted, actually heavily mortgaged. Um, but many of them are, are able to stay in Quebec because they do have some of those earnings. Again, it's some of the larger families that have to find some sort of income, maybe younger sons or daughters who don't have to care for an older person in their household who do make the move down to the States. But that being said, we do have some examples of memes and pepes who do, who do come down with um, the core of that household, um, meaning maybe middle-aged children and their own grandchildren. Um, and these are an absolute asset because that means that both parents and the children, at least the older children can work while the grandmère, the grandmother or the grandfather can take care of the household in these tenements or take care of the younger children. So there's kind of a shared responsibility there. These new Franco-American households, how did they come from Canada to the US? Uh, who or who brought them? Was it recruiters or or family already in the United States? Well, that's an easy one because the answer is all of the above. Um, I can elaborate a little bit. So in the early days of the migration movement, uh, as it starts picking up steam, uh, at this time metaphorically picking up steam in the 1820s and 1830s, um, we do find a lot of people because there aren't railways yet, at least any that cross the border, uh, people walking down to the States. So we do have the example of um, Israel Chavanel, who walks down all the way from Compton in the Eastern Townships of Quebec, not too far from Vermont, to Biddeford, Maine, which is a multi-week journey, very impressive. And he sleeps outside and manages not to get mauled by bears. And we also have people coming in by um, horse cart, ox-drawn cart, and that's the case of those who come down to Rhode Island as early again as the 1810s and 20s, and that too is definitely a multi-week journey and not easy considering the state of the roads at that time. Even in the states, they're underfunded, and you know if you're traveling in the spring, then you will get bogged down very literally in whatever ruts there are in the road. So it is very difficult. It is a um, sometimes a painful process. Now there are stagecoach lines that early, uh, but that's usually for the well-to-do. They are a little bit more expensive. Before the advent of the railroad, the easiest way of getting around is by water. So that that's one of the reasons why the Champlain-Richelieu axis um, east of Montreal is so important. People can steam, so take a steamship up the Richelieu River into uh, Lake Champlain, and then eventually down the Hudson as well, or up the Great Lakes to Illinois country and Michigan. Uh, but of course, the big game changer here, again, speaking of picking up steam, is the railway. And the first one to cross a border is completed in 1853. It connects Montreal to Portland. And from there, all sorts of branch lines and connections to 
other railway uh, lines will be built and the most important ones will cross upstate New York, Vermont, and start connecting in a much more intricate way uh, and kind of facilitate the, the passage of people in the outlying regions of Quebec. But the transportation infrastructure in Quebec really doesn't branch out into the outlying regions, meaning outside of Montreal or Sherbrooke until the 1870s. So how did these people living in these very rural regions get to the train? Did they travel to the nearest city? Typically, that's right. Um, you know, it's kind of fascinating. We don't have a whole lot of first-person accounts about that initial trip. What seems to have lingered in people's minds, uh, at least from the perspective of oral interviews, is the train trip, which was so novel. Uh, very few of these people had taken the, the train prior to that. Uh, but we suspect that that's right. They, they uh, took a cart or were driven in some sort of cart or horse-drawn vehicle by their um, friends or family to the nearest station, um, after which their friends or family would go back home and um, that would enable them, enable them to also bring luggage um, and of course food for the trip. And you can just imagine many of these um, trips are full day affairs. Even leaving aside the process of getting to the train station in Quebec, it often takes a full day's journey to get say from Montreal to Manchester or some of the other cities in the crown around um, Boston, industrial crown. So it's quite a process. And of course, if you're traveling with six children, you have to ensure that your six children are fed for the better part of two days. You have to have all the essentials. You're bringing some clothing so you're not starting a new, starting from scratch in the States. So it's quite a process, truly. Um, and often the process of settling in the States of founding a new household occurs in multiple trips. So the head of household, as they call them then, so maybe the, the father, the husband in the household would cross first, explore, um, meet with kin who are living down there, try to find positions, try to find an apartment. So there'd be all these exploratory trips that history hasn't really recorded, but we do know somewhat anecdotally from oral interviews that that did happen so that the moment that the whole family was ready, they could do it all in one go. Um, somewhat painlessly. So it sounds like the flow between the borders back then was really liquid. It's not like today, even during the COVID pandemic, where it's, you have to go through a whole process to get on the other side of that border. Absolutely. And the border is not monitored in any meaningful way or any recognizable way until at least the 1880s when there's a huge smallpox epidemic in Montreal, at which point there are public health officials appointed predominantly by the states um, to hop on trains as they cross the border. Sometimes they do inspections at the station in Montreal, sometimes at the first checkpoint on American soil to see whether people have some sort of scar, whether they've been inoculated, whether they show signs of having smallpox. Um, but that's very brief that lasts for the entirety of the pandemic, which is just about a year. In a sense, that's a very timely story, I guess. Um, and then afterwards, there's a paper trail that starts um, in the 1890s, uh, where people sign cards uh, when they board a train or when they make their first stop on the state, um, uh, on the road to the States, and they fill out these small 
cards that aren't necessarily necessarily any declaration with regard to citizenship, but that chronicles their crossing of the border. Uh, but then, you know, in terms of a recognizable border, it's only in the 19, late 1910s and 1920s. And again, this is not necessarily because people are particularly concerned about French Canadians in and of themselves. It's because of prohibition, which is enacted in 1919. So people are monitoring the border uh, to make sure that there's no smuggling happening. Um, and, you know, the something resembling Homeland Security or um, what is now the uh, Border and Customs Service is not created in some in any meaningful way on the northern border until the 1920s. And that's inspired a lot by what's happening on the south southwestern border with Mexico. So a lot of those approaches are imported here, but they're belated and there's no major concern about um, the flow of people, partly because as other scholars and historians have noted, uh, French Canadians, even though they're not particularly well liked by some people at some points in time, they are critical to the industrial economy. And that um, is kind of a good segue because you did mention recruiters in your prior question. There are recruiters in operating in Quebec at least as early as the 1840s, if you can believe that. Um, but also the 1850s, 1860s, they do solicit the interest of people who might be interested in moving to the States. And increasingly those recruiters are French Canadians. They're people who've moved to the States that are now in the employer factories. They might be fluently bilingual by that point. And mill managers are sending them back to say, hey, we do have jobs, we do have tenements, we'll house you, we'll clothe you, we'll take care of you. So, you know, we we tend to think or imagine these French uh, these recruiters as being Yankees and people who are just there to make a quick buck. But uh, one of the re reasons why they're successful is that, especially in later years, they are French Canadian immigrants themselves who do get you know, a kickback for recruiting some people in Quebec. Uh, but all that recruiting technically stops in 1885 when Congress passes the Alien Contract Labor Law. Uh, it's a bit of a mouthful, but it's basically to say, um, you, know, you can't recruit people north of the border or any, in any foreign country for short-term contract work, especially if it's unskilled work in the States. And that's the result of pushback from American workers who are facing competition from this quote-unquote horde of Canadians coming across the border in droves. So the Americans that are rooting for this new law, are they usually the ones in these mill cities or are they all over the country? Yeah, great question. So that's coming from a pushback that is not quite nationwide, but almost. Um, it comes predominantly from uh, the Irish working class that uh, is invested in the American labor movement long before French Canadians are. And uh, they're concerned about their livelihood. Again, they're uh, excuse me, concerned about their, um, uh, their ability to support themselves. They're concerned about competition. Uh, but it's also coming from traditionally nativist or xenophobic parts of American society um, or families that are simply well-established on American soil whose concerns might not be economic competition necessarily, but more cultural fears about um, assimilation, about 
the supposed decline and fall of true American, you know, Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture. So the, the concerns are varied, the rooted in economics, but also uh, culture. And only a few years after this, on the heels of this uh, contract labor law, there is the rise of the American Protective Association, which is one of the first major nationwide uh, nativist organizations. And of course, the um, as John Hyam explains in his great work on American nativism, um, it basically goes in waves. There's the xenophobic period of the know-nothings kind of recedes at the time of the Civil War, partly because so many of the people who are fighting are immigrants, including Irish immigrants. Then there's a rise again in the 1880s, what uh, again, John Hyam calls a crisis of the 80s, uh, declines slightly momentarily in the 1890s and it kicks up again a little bit later on. Uh, so it comes in waves um, and oftentimes it is correlated directly to the economic cycle. So by the sound of it, the Americans did not like them arriving. They didn't like them, quote unquote, taking their jobs per se. Well, arguably, there's uh, limited direct competition between um, Americans in the sense of native born Anglo-Saxon Yankees, um, a term I use without afterthought, just because that's a term that's been used at the time. Um, there's much greater competition, again, with the Irish, and that's partly for jobs, but it's also for resources that might be allocated to religious institutions. Um, I won't say that um, Americans as a whole are indifferent, but there are a lot of contemporary French Canadians in the 1880s, 90s, early 1900s, who argue that the Yankees are so much more friendly to them and so much more welcoming of their presence on American soil than the Irish are, um, or than other immigrant groups are. Uh, again, partly because there's this running battle over urban geography, over the limited resources of these mill cities. Um, so even though the APA, the American Protective Association, is predominantly an Anglo-Saxon affair, um, in a, on a day-to-day -day basis, what conflict there is, is predominantly with the Irish. And again, this is a time when there's significant ethnic, um, not necessarily forcible or legal segregation, but de facto segregation in a lot of these cities between uh, different ethnic groups. So the Irish will have the Irish Quarter or whatever it's called in, you know, Lewiston, Lowell and Fall River and French Canadians have their Pitts Canada, Little Canada. And oftentimes by this point, the Yankees are well-to-do, they've done better in life, there's less competition, and they've moved to different sectors of the city uh, that are more affluent. So again, the actual direct exchange between these two groups is slightly more limited, which might explain the impression that the Yankees are just more friendly or that there, there are no issues at all between the Yankees and the Franco-Americans. So you mentioned this uh, a little bit ago. What did the Canadians think of the Quebecois leaving to these cities in the US? Certainly. So if we're talking about Canada at large, or as it was for part of this period, British North America, um, we have to remember that English Canadians face an outmigration of the same proportions. So we often believe or, or easily, easily led to believe that French Canadians were, 
you know, the majority of the people, the vast majority of the people leaving the British dominions in North America. But again, English Canadians move with their feet, um, at least from the 1850s onward, in the same proportions as uh, Bruno Ramirez, the great uh, Quebec historian, has argued. So they're facing not necessarily the same economic conditions, but the same challenges. And they're also feeling the powerful lure of the American economic engine of potential opportunity. And Americans are great about selling themselves, selling their promise, selling their nation. So a lot of French Canadians and English Canadians buy into that. And there's a lot of re-migration as well. People coming from Ireland to the British dominions, meaning the British North American colonies, Canada, working there for a few years, finding a spouse, and then moving almost instantly uh, to American soil. So that process of remigration is really interesting as well. So it's, again, not only French Canadians going on this uh, journey, but you know, you've talked about impressions and how elites really are dealing with this situation. And the reality is not well, that's the short answer, but whether they could have done better considering the significant structural woes of Lower Canada, considering, again, the power of the American economic engine and industrialization, you know, were they holding back a tie that really no one could um, stand against? That's kind of the ultimate question for a lot of uh, scholars who look at the subject. But either way, a lot of Franco, or pardon me, I'll rephrase that, a lot of Quebec elites are not too fond of people leaving, partly because it means that French Canadians as a whole have less numerical weight within Canada. So they have fewer representatives potentially in the halls of power in Ottawa. And of course they feel as though, these elites feel as though there's this um, dissolving of French Canadian culture the moment that people leave the border. And this narrative is still present, right? People are leaving Quebec and ultimately it's to their cultural doom and there is no hope for French Canadian culture or the French Canadian language or the Catholic faith outside the bounds of Canada. So that narrative is still very much there outside of Quebec. Um, so there is um, some condescension that is very visibly and audibly expressed by these Quebec leads. And they are trying to do what they can with limited means of the province of Quebec uh, in the late 19th century to keep people here and repatriate them. Repatriation schemes are, for the most part, a bust. Very few succeed. Um, you know, we're, we could count them in the low thousands, probably, based on existing estimates. Um, and there is some work to open up other regions of Quebec, and those regions are settled, but the land is never as fertile as that of the uh, lower St. Lawrence, or sorry, of the St. Lawrence Valley as a whole. And oftentimes, you know, they're sending people out into the wilderness to harvest rocks and to, you know, to starve for winter upon winter upon winter. Um, so it's very, it's a lot more alluring, especially if you consider the amount of labor required to open up, you know, farm in the middle, middle of the wilderness, cut down trees, eat potatoes and turnips for two years, three years until you can sow wheat, get rid of the stumps. It is a giant endeavor. Now compare that to the alternative of hopping on a train and being able to feed yourself the next day just by walking into a mill. So it seems quite natural that a lot of people are leaving. And that's what the Quebec elites are up against, uh, the ease of hopping on a railway and being able to feed yourself instantly. So it sounds like it was super easy to just hop to 
the U.S. get these get to uh, one of these mill cities and but when when they got there, what happened? Uh, where did they live? Well, this is where the role of kinship networks um, and larger social networks is really important, including epistolary networks. So letters that might have been exchanged with people. So there's this huge network of communication that occurs that is necessary, um, that has to be in place really for people to be able to come in and thrive. Um, I don't want to exaggerate how easy it was, but the fact is that by the time whole families moved to the States, some of the groundwork has been laid. Uh, chances are they already know a former neighbor or friends or again, kin, larger extended family that have already made the move that, um, and maybe you know those people who are already on the other side of the border are trying to lure them and say, you know, we're doing okay, we're doing better than we did in Quebec. Um, and sometimes it might be one teenage girl saying to her cousin north of the border, you know, I'm not earning my own income, uh, even though I have to give it all to, to mom or dad or whoever else. Um, so there's, you know, it's easy to miss that part of the picture of the amount of communication, much of which has been lost. And we also have to look back to whatever was advertised in local newspapers in Quebec, um, because some of these large corporations or railways did advertise in these news newspapers saying, well, you know, this summer only you can get to the States for 15 bucks or whatever it is. Uh, so access to that type inf of information is crucial. In the early days and early decades of the, the mass migration, again, partly because we have a lot of single men, uh, they tend to turn towards boarding houses that are kept by sometimes widows, private individuals. Sometimes it's an actual company. If the company is big enough, it might have its own boarding house where men are served a meal, where you know whatever they earn in that company goes back into the till to, to have a roof over their heads. Um, but over time, that boarding house population becomes a tenement house population where there are actual apartments, and sometimes it's just two rooms, but still an apartment where um, whole families can be lodged. And as people start moving up the economic ladder, uh, and this is a multi-generational process, they might move into a triple decker as you know, you brilliantly, brilliantly discuss this in uh, the initial Dawson series, and then eventually maybe in Californian bungalows after the Second World War. Uh, but initially these are people, again, because economics are driving the migration, these are people of limited means. They come in, they need to find work right away. And maybe that's something that's been facilitated by a recruiter or somebody in their extended family who's already in that mill city. And, um, you know, they'll have to find furnishings for their homes. And this is where uh, American or sorry, Franco-American businessmen play a key part. So they're able to lend furnitures, furniture or to provide it on credit to these French Canadian families, knowing that they'll be able to pay it back. Um, and these local businesses owned and operated by French Canadians are in many in many respects and in many places, the heart of the community because that's where information is exchanged and that's where these new immigrants can learn about the larger community. So it seems like when they first arrived, there was quite a bit to do. And you said that many of these, uh, say, single men would live in boarding houses. So often would they find work or housing first? That's a great question. So in many places that's indissociable 
Um, and I think, again, that's with this early boarding house population, we need more research. Um, people typically start the story of the diaspora in the 1860s, sometimes with grudging acknowledgement of the 1840s and 50s, uh, but we still haven't really traced the most common experiences, the most common fields of migration. Um, and granted, the resources are limited, meaning the primary documents that attest to this population. Uh, but again, in most cases, there is some sort of connection between the boarding house and the company, and the company will direct people to the boarding house or the boarding house to the company if they're not owned and operated by the same thing. And very often also, there is a single industry. So if you go into a boarding house in Berlin, New Hampshire in the 1870s or 1880s, well, you're going to work in some sort of lumber related field. Um, and there'll be one or two big mills and that's about it. So in the outlying regions, it's very hard to parse those out. And to a great extent in the larger mill cities as well, especially in the early decades, uh, the tenements that go up and go up really quickly, like in places like Fall River, um, they're nearly all, and there are exceptions, but they're nearly all, uh, again, in those early years owned by uh, the large manufacturing uh, concerns. So we're talking a lot about like these uh, single men. What were the lives of women or the children? How did they change from farm to mill? Great question that we really need to, I think, address more and address better as researchers um, because it is often implied that we're talking from a predominantly masculine perspective or if not masculine, male maybe. Um, so the, it's important to note that although we might think that these are people working for the first time, what we're really talking about is that they're working outside the household potentially for the first time through the immigration process and they're working for wages for the first time because let's not kid ourselves on the farm women were working hard and probably at least as hard as men um, in the kitchen in the garden in some cases in the fields raising children teaching children um, mending clothes making sure that everything was as spick and span as it could be as clean as it could be within the household so women were you know were bearing not only children, but a pretty sizable load in terms of their contribution to the domestic economy and the domestic household in Lower Canada. Now they're doing the same thing, but many of them as well are working in the mills, at least short term, at least to again contribute to uh, household income. But the model becomes increasingly a very, um, a what we could call a middle class Yankee model of um, of womanhood in which they are stay-at-home moms, that they are um, caretakers for the household as a, as a whole. And in fact, once women marry in the States increasingly, they will be quote unquote confined to the household, sometimes voluntarily, sometimes it's just the nature of their cultural environment where they are expected to sometimes by French Canadian priests or other Catholic leaders or the predominant language of the time, which is very much um, Anglo-Saxon and Protestant, they are expected to stay within the household. Um, and many women will increasingly subscribe to that and tend to domestic chores, somewhat like they did 
back in Quebec. So there will be a disproportion of women working in the mills who are very young, who are in their 20s, who are on the verge of getting married, um, after which, you know, the moment they start having children, if there's no one else in the household, like older siblings to care for their younger children, or maybe a meme or a pepe who can take care of them, then it will be expected that the mother has her primary obligation to her children. Um, now, I don't want to erase entirely the fact that there is paid income in Quebec. There is, but it is very limited. And women do, you know, contribute to the sale of linen and all sorts of other products. But again, this is nothing compared to the amount that they will contribute in terms of sheer income, uh, cold hard cash, as they will on American soil. Hence the, you know, if we're talking about the cost benefit analysis of moving to the States, the opportunity for women to still work as they did before, but earn more money is pretty big. And you also mentioned children. Again, younger siblings um, might not, especially in their early years, if they can't even pretend to pass as a 15 year old, uh, since from the 1880s onward, usually that's kind of the standard. You have to be 13 or 14 or 15 to work for wages. Um, even though a lot of parents will lie, a lot of mill owners will lie and say, well, these are the papers we had whenever there are mill inspectors, uh, but there'll be a lot of um, critical oversights, meaning that a lot of this enforcement of policies will be overlooked or neglected over time. Um, but it's really important to look at um, the income of the household as a whole, even though we might be tempted today to imagine that the 1880s were just like the 1950s where, you know, the man works outside the household, he's a breadwinner, woman keeps a home, and the children are all in school until 15 or 16 or later, and that's really not the case. So the role of women that we see a lot in like the 1950s as very stay-at-home, that wasn't always the case. That's exactly right. So even though that increasingly becomes the ideal, and as I mentioned earlier, it is an ideal that's pushed, that's promoted by the Catholic hierarchy. The reality is a lot of women, even for short periods of time, have to go back into the mills, even once they have children. Um, so there is kind of a discrepancy be between what they aim and what their lived reality is, certainly. Um, and it's all because increasingly people, whether they're French Canadian or Irish or Italian or Jewish or Polish or whatever else, they, you know, through the process of acculturation, they come to accept the model that's being promoted by um, Yankee culture. And it's partly because these Yankee families, these Anglo-Saxon Protestant families that have been established for a long time have done better in life. So they can afford to have the mother or the wife stay at home. You know, it's enough for a single person within the household to have a living wage and support the entire household. But that's not the experience of typically other immigrant groups, at least in the first one or two generations. So certainly there's a, a huge discrepancy there. Um, and, uh, you know, we it's also important to note that women engage in the textile industry, but all sorts of other pursuits as well. Um, that are increasingly open to them after the turn of the century, whether it's as uh, clerks, clerks in a bank, in 
um, all sorts of services, clerks in a store, if they're bilingual, perfect, we'll hire them as a clerk, um, as nurses, and other occupations that are traditionally seen as being gendered. So earlier you were talking about the Catholic Church's role in changing the lives of these what are now Franco-Americans, but then French-Canadian immigrants. Obviously, this wasn't the case back in Quebec. So how did their religious life change from Quebec to the United States? Well, we can cut up that experience into different eras, different periods. Um, up until the 1860s, in most parts of New England or the Northeast as a whole, the Catholic Church is a melting pot. And physical churches are also melting pots because we don't have a broad network of national parishes yet. And for your listeners, um, for those who might have missed that part in the initial series, national parishes typically are recognized as such as being uh, the true preserve of French Canadian culture on American soil. Um, they have a French Canadian or at least French speaking pastor and very often a French Canadian assistant or vicar as well. Uh, or curate, I should say. And um, in that way, people are able to feel more comfortable, feel more welcome in the church. That means the priest can hear their confessions in their own native language. It means the homily, or what we often call the sermon, is in French as well, so they can understand that instead of having, you know, the whole mass in Latin and then a few words of English, which would be as maybe incomprehensible for many of them. Um, and that church, that national parish, will also recognize their specific customs, their rites, their national celebrations, like La Saint-Jean-Baptiste, Saint John, Saint John the Baptist's Day, um, and take part in their cultural activities. So that's very significant, but that network only uh, comes into being at the end of the 1860s. The first one is created at the end of the 1840s in Burlington, Vermont, but that's a few and you know that, that's a fairly rare model um, until after the Civil War. And then in quick succession, especially after 1869, we do have a lot of national parishes being created. Um, American bishops, which are predominantly American born or Irish, kind of agree they buy into this system because they figure that that's one way of keeping French Canadians away from proselytizing um, Protestant ministers and a lot of these families kept away because, again, it was all in English. It didn't feel like home. It didn't feel like their church. It didn't feel like their religion. And in quick succession from 1869 to 1873, at a rate of one a year, you do have one of these parishes popping up in all five of the cities I mentioned earlier. Um, Woonsocket, Fall River, Lowell, Manchester, Lewiston. So the, the big five, as we might call them, sorry, Biddeford, um, and Nashua, and a few other places. Um, which are obviously I study a lot of other places. So uh, I say that without any neglect or condescension. Uh, but all that to say that from that point on, that network only expands by the 20th century. There's about 100 national parishes all over the Northeast, including New York State. Um, so from that moment on, they feel a lot more welcome and it feels a lot more like Quebec. So New England is kind of remade in their image, at least in key locales where they're especially concentrated. There are a lot of places around the region where they simply don't have the numbers to support a separate parish. So larger, or sorry, smaller urban centers 
where you do have a small Irish population, a small French population. Those are often towns or cities where there will be closer bonds between the two groups and where there will be a higher rate of intermarriage as well. So there's just, just less insularity between these different ethnic groups. Um, and in those places, it does become more of a melting pot as opposed to a mosaic model of inter-ethnic exchange. Um, but one of the big uh, uh, points of contention between these different groups in large cities is simply the fact that these national parishes have to be carved out of existing parishes. So in the original parishes that pop up in the 1830s and 1840s, because of the huge immigration from Ireland, um, the Irish are oftentimes the majority. They create their churches. They create their own local Catholic institutions. And then you have this secession movement. Let's call it that, the secession movement from these predominantly Irish parishes to create a new French Canadian parish. So these French Canadian immigrants vote with their feet. They vote with their wallets. So they're drawing resources away from the old parishes. And suddenly, you know, these older parishes still have the key, same core group of um, Irish people, the same key families that were there before French Canadian immigration, but now without the means that a lot of these French Canadians had been contributing on a weekly basis. So they're not too happy about it and they complain. And that's, you know, we often talk about the labor, labor movement as being a cause of the friction between French Canadians and Irish, but that early secession, secession movement where French Canadians create their alternate network of religious institutions is also key to that, um, that um, reality of rising tensions between uh, different ethnic groups. So they do kind of empower themselves and they're led by their priests in that regard, uh, but the process of creating a new Quebec from a religious standpoint in New England and in New York State is quite lengthy and very difficult from the perspective of Franco-Irish relations. So it sounds like the French Canadians and the Irish didn't exactly get along. Again, this is a great yes and no, you know, type of situation. It, the what we have to recall is that Franco America is culturally diverse today, especially it's linguistically diverse. At that time, it's already geographic, geographically and economically diverse. So. Uh, it's very hard to give a single kind of monolithic answer to that, uh, partly because, again, in smaller towns, smaller places, um, let's say maybe Spencer, Massachusetts, or St. Johnsbury, Vermont, uh, to an extent, maybe Barry, Vermont, or upstate New York, there are fairly close ties between these two groups. Um, and sometimes it's just because they have a larger enemy which is, you know, the surrounding population of potentially nativistic, xenophobic Yankees. So sometimes they have to circle the wagons and come together. And that's very, very true in the 1920s. Uh, and that's increasingly true across the region in the 1920s when the KKK becomes a menace and the two groups have to come together. And this is also a time when increasingly they're forging close relations relations within the labor movement. By the end of the First World War, um, an increasing proportion of French Canadians are buying into the labor movement. For a long time, they had been resisting organization and pickets and strikes and everything else that goes with it because they're afraid of 
disorder and it just felt very foreign. But by the 1920s, they're really joining en masse and um, they're also, you know, there will be religious conflict in the 1920s. Um, but overall, things become a lot more friendly between the two groups. And it's really partly because both are becoming more culturally acculturated in American society. And there's a genuine effort undertaken by the Catholic Church to um, kind of erase the harder edges of those inter-ethnic tensions. Um, and of course, that comes at a cost. It comes at, the, at a cost of losing certain e um, ethnic traits that had been well ingrained. Uh, but it's all part of the larger journey from French Canadian to Franco-American. So again, by the 1920s, Franco-Irish relations are very slowly on the men, which is not to say that everything is perfect, but um, a lot better than they were, say, a generation or two earlier. So that's that's actually really interesting. So French Canadians must have had kind of a hard time living among these other ethnic groups. But on the other hand, it I mean they still kind of existed into the into the sixties, into the seventies. I understand that one thing that they sort of had as a value was something called la survivance. Could you touch on that a little bit and and say how it guided them? Certainly, uh, and la survivance is interpreted or defined in slightly different ways over time. Um, and certainly in different ways, whether you're in Quebec or in the larger Franco slash French Canadian world. Uh, but essentially, it's the idea that uh, language and faith are mutually supportive. It's an ideology pardon, of cultural survival, of preservation. And it's thought that uh, the preservation of the tongue will help to keep people true to their faith, as opposed to being anglicized and that being um, kind of a launching pad towards Protestantization. And similarly, Catholicism can serve the language and the customs. So by attending a Catholic church where the Catholic priest is French Canadian and believes in that mission, um, he can provide for the community and perhaps in time, a distinctly French Canadian school can be built. So the two are meant to be mutually supportive and of course, that kind of breaks down, as you're hinting at, in the 1960s and 1970s, as the Catholic part of it kind of falls away. People are increasingly moving away from um, the Catholic Church. Parishes consolidate, schools consolidate or close. Um, but yes, it is a, a long-standing um, ideology of survival that arguably enables, you know, if we're talking about French Canadian success stories, uh, really French Canadians have a distinct, distinguished record on American soil in terms of the preservation of their traditional customs. And they do so much longer than many other groups that are maybe slightly more, um, somewhat more quickly assimilated or acculturated into mainstream society. Now, the people who come over the border are for the most part, working class people, farming class people, who are not ideologues, right? They're not moving because, you know, they want to stick it to the king or to the queen. It's not because they firmly believe in planting the flag of French Canada on foreign soil and seeking revenge for the conquest. They might harbor ideas vaguely resembling that, 
But the truth is they're moving predominantly to find a job, feed their children, you know, make ends meet and survive. Now that ideology is kind of in the background and it's tweaked and refined by pastors and people in the press and businessmen, um, professionals of all kind. Um, so there's certainly bathing over time in that specific context, uh, which I think we, we certainly do need to acknowledge. Um, and those will be the symbolic guides of the French Canadian community. But again, their primary concern is perpetuating the type of community that they had known in Quebec, recreating something that is familiar. And that's kind of what's driving them. It's community more than some sort of ethereal, hypothetical, theoretical idea of ethnic identity, ethnic purpose, ethnic mission. Um, so they're never very far from those ideals, but they're trying to recreate what they had known and to make sure that they can live in a predominantly French Canadian environment, which is what they had always known in Canada anyway. So when we talk about frictions with other groups, when the population enables them to do so, they kind of cluster together um, for mutual support and a lot of mutual benefit societies arise out of this, uh, but because they are a community of interest on American soil and one that is frequently bound by religion, faith and kinship networks. Patrick, I want to thank you for, so much for doing this, and I've learned so much. Um, and I mean, every single time that I learn something new, I wish I could go back and add it to the original Dawson series. But I guess that's why I'm I'm doing this podcast. So once again, I want to thank you. And Patrick, if people want to learn more about this kind of stuff or what you what you do, where can they go? Well, first off, I invite all of your wonderful, smart listeners to, if not come physically to Fort Kent, Maine, to the Acadian Archives, to check us out online, a quick Google search will do, uh, to find all the amazing resources that we do have in the Upper St. John Valley. Um, really wonderful community up here. So um, if you can visit, please do so. I invite also everyone who's listening to check out my website and my blog on Franco-American history, uh, as you mentioned in the introduction very kindly, which, you, which I appreciate. Uh, it's querythepast.com. And needless to say, if anyone wants to get in touch with me, I'm happy to answer additional questions, provide guidance, exchange, field uh, comments and criticism. Uh, and you know, again, you can just Google my name or find me at the Acadian Archives or use the contact form on my website. Um, I'm thrilled to keep this conversation going um, wherever it leads. So thank you all. And thank you, especially Daniel for the invitation. Thank you, Patrick.